Good morning, everybody. My name is Darren, and it's nice to see you all here and to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you. If you are a guest with us, I'm imagining at this point you're thinking like, oh man, what is this? This 1 Corinthians 5 thing is a little heavy, right? You feel a little nervous about it? Yeah, all right. I hear you. I hear you. Guess what? I got to teach it, so I feel you. Um, we're going to dive in in a second. Let me say this. If you're a guest, we're really glad you're here and we want you to feel welcome. We want you to feel at home, whether you've come with friends or you're in from the neighborhood or whatever. And one of the things that's a core value to us here at the church is that we, we love God's word and we study it with, without exception. So we work our way through a book like 1 Corinthians and occasionally you come to a passage that's complicated and a little strange, admittedly, or heavy. Uh, we don't dodge those. We don't dance around them. We don't skip them and go to the next chapter or whatever. We work our way through and we see what God has for us. So don't be alarmed by that. I promise uh, that, that it will uh, it'll make sense once we, or hopefully, if I do my job decently, it'll kind of make sense. But, uh, but that is a part of who we are. We're a church that works through God's word uh, as it has been revealed. And we, and we actually really love that. So we find it to be essential to who we are as a community. Uh, but if you're a guest, I'd love to meet you. Our connections team would love to meet you. We want you to feel at home. And hopefully before long, this will feel like family to you around here. Before we dive into 1 Corinthians 5, I have two quick items of business. One of them has to do with our family business meeting. We were supposed to have a family business meeting today at 3 o'clock. Uh, to, uh, the elders were planning to formally present some bylaw changes that we were looking to vote and adopt in February. Uh, after have a little conversation and some review, we realized that those uh, those bylaw changes only make sense when you sort of understand our governance procedure. And many of you hadn't seen the governance documents. And so the bylaw changes didn't make a lot of sense to you. So the governance documents are available either through a link in the, in the e-news that comes out, or we, we are happy to print a copy for you or whatever. If you're interested in looking at our governance uh, clarity and, and communication, we can get you all of that. But because there were some people who were confused about the bylaw changes because they hadn't seen the governance, long story short, we are not doing that meeting today, right? So there's not a family meeting today. What we will do is present those bylaw changes in February, and then we'll vote on those in May. So you got a little bit of time to look it over and review. But this afternoon, hey, guess what? At 3 o'clock, you don't need to be here. You can take a nap. You can do what I'm going to do, cry into my pillow about the Astros winning the World Series. So if that, uh, that's what I'm planning to do with my afternoon, and you're welcome to join me. Uh, not, not my, you, you may not cry into my pillow, but you can cry into your own pillows. Uh, second item of business is this. If you are part of the family around here, I would love to invite you to be in prayer. Uh, for the staff and elders this week. As you may know, if you've been sort of paying attention, uh, our budget is in a little bit of trouble. And that's because we projected more giving than we've actually received. And that's not a terrible thing. It, it means we have to do the hard work of stewardship and being faithful about the money that we have. But what that means is that on Tuesday, as the elders meet, we're looking at what it's going to look like for us to steward that budget well which will likely mean, I mean, will absolutely mean that we have to make some changes. And that has to do with people. It has to do with programs. It has to do with how we're spending our money currently. And all of that requires discernment and wisdom. It's all of it is heavy. And so if you're part of the family around here, as we're trying to figure out how to best manage and utilize the funds that God has brought in, we would just love for your prayer. I'd love for you. I mean, if you're the fasting kind of person, and I hope that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a fasting kind of person, maybe you'd even consider fasting on Tuesday in prayer for the elders on Tuesday night. Uh, If you're not, up faster or if your physical health prevents you from doing that, then just be in prayer. But I wanted you to be aware that there's, uh, there's some stuff that just we, we'd love to have your prayer on for Tuesday. So 
With that said, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, we've been working our way through, and in some ways, it feels like uh, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 5 turns a little bit of a corner uh, to address a new issue. He's been talking about division in the first four chapters, but there isn't a, this isn't a completely seamless transition. There is a thread that flows through. He's been talking of 1 Corinthians 4, as Billy, I thought, did a great job last week presenting that chapter to us. He's talking in 1 Corinthians 4 about the fact that you and I, as followers of Jesus, as the assembly of God, we are stewards of the mysteries of God, right? And servants of Christ for the sake of other people. And as stewards, there are some things we have to be very particular about. That's why the division of Paul or Apollos or Cephas doesn't make sense. But he goes on at the end of four to say, look, there are some things that need to be corrected and you can either self-correct those or, you know, the day's going to come when I'm going to have to show up. And, And it's sort of up to you whether I show up with a heavy hand or a soft hand, right? Do I come bearing a stick or do I come in grace? That has everything to do with how meticulous you as a community become about upholding and maintaining the holiness of God. But some of you, he says in four, are so arrogant, you don't even think I'm coming. Like, you don't think I'm going to come back. So while he's thinking about their arrogance, while he's thinking about being a steward of the mysteries of God, we can see his, his mind sort of transition to another thing that he had heard about their community that ties both to arrogance, but more importantly, to the stewardship of the mysteries of God. And he says here in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Right? Paul says, uh, there is word on the street that there is sexual immorality going on among you. Now, uh, just as a little side note, before we dive into the, the, actually the main thrust of the text here, it is worth noting that the Bible speaks very clearly about sexual immorality. And there are lots of people who like to do all kinds of maneuvers and dancing to kind of get around it. Part of that has to do with the fact that not just our culture, but every culture in human history has always been obsessed with sex, right? So that sex obsession leads to a desire on the part of human beings to kind of want to do whatever they want to do when they want to do it, right? And we certainly see that reflected in pop culture, not just in pop culture in 2022, but we've seen that reflected in every era of mankind ever. You can go back to the Greco-Roman period. First, First Corinthians is written to the church at Corinth. Sexual immorality was rampant in Corinth, right? It was a, it was a sexually depraved society. I want to take a moment before we get further into this specific chapter and just sort of reaffirm what maybe you already know But the Bible is very specific in its requirement for those of us who are Jesus followers with the way we think about and act sexually, right? There is no vagary. There's no sort of uh, we can agree to disagree. There's not a lot of room to wiggle. The Bible is very clear that sexual intimacy is meant within the context of marriage between committed individuals, right? And that's the only place where it's appropriate. There is no place. So when we talk about adultery, what we're talking about there is sex with someone who is married, but not with their spouse. We talk about sexual immorality. In this case, we're talking about all kinds of sexual intimacy and activity that fall outside of that commitment between two people who are committed to each other forever, right? Any other kind of sexual activity is forbidden in the Bible. And, and I just, I kind of want to hit that. It's going to come up in first Corinthians again, But because he gets specifically into one form of sexual immorality, I don't want you to be distracted and miss the fact that the Bible is actually very clear for those of us who are Christ followers about what sexual intimacy is and what it absolutely isn't, right? Passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 say, this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. So we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, right? Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 13, four, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, right? Um, it's hard sometimes to, to deal with the fact that the Christian community is called to a very high standard with regard to sexual immorality, because the rest of our world has kind of thrown those rules to the wayside, right? And so you are certainly interacting with people whose perception of the way sexual intimacy works and where it's appropriate and where it's not will be very fast and loose, right? And And it's... It is important for us as followers of Jesus to know we've been called to another standard, and that's fidelity in marriage in sexual intimacy, right? So that's a little bit of a side note, but it's important because what he's pointing at here in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 is a deviance that isn't even appropriate in the pagan culture, right? So not only is, is sexual immorality uh, not permissible within the community of Christ followers, but the thing he's pointing at, which is a man having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. That doesn't mean his mom, not his birth mom. It's talking about either a stepmother or it's talking about a potentially, it could be talking about a concubine. There's a lot of ways to interpret that word. But the idea is of an ongoing sexual relationship, a persistent sexual relationship with the wife of his father. And whether that's being done incognito, it doesn't really seem like it's being done incognito because Paul's heard about it in a different town, right? Whether that's uh, the result of the father having died or whether that's uh, an adulterous affair. or we, we don't really get all the details of the nature of the relationship between the son and the, and the stepmom. But what he says here is this is going on in your community and this is a thing that shouldn't be permitted in your community and actually isn't even permitted by Greco-Roman law. Like this is the kind of thing that should have been rejected outright. And strangely, it hasn't been rejected outright. Now, here, here's the point of his emphasis in 1 Corinthians 5. And this is vital as we're studying it. Paul is not writing a chapter about incest, right? This chapter is not about incest. In fact, the incest that's taking place is only a vehicle to illustrate a much bigger problem. What Paul is vigilant about and what he is absolutely adamant about in 1 Corinthians 5 is the attitude of the community of believers about persistent and ongoing wickedness, right? The attitude of believers towards persistent and ongoing wickedness. He says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Now we don't know exactly what this arrogance is about, but he, he repeats it in verse six. He says, your boasting is not good. So whatever's going on here, rather than the people grieving and mourning over this persistent sexual immorality that's happening among them, rather than them being heavy-hearted and grievous over it, they've somehow turned it into a source of pride or arrogance or boasting. Now, there are a lot of different ways to speculate about what that looks like. That may be... That may be them reveling in the freedom they have in Christ, right? The text doesn't tell us, but it may be them saying, hey, you know what? We have been so set free in Christ that this guy can have an affair with his dad's wife and it's no big deal and we are, we are free, right? That may be part of what's happening here. Paul doesn't tell us. It may be that, that in their arrogance, uh, they're dealing with someone who is uh, 
maybe he's uh, in high standing socially, or maybe he's incredibly wealthy, or maybe he has a lot of power or influence, right? It's possible that in their pride over having such a one in their community, they're worried to say anything correctional to him because they don't want to lose his money, or they don't want to lose his influence, or they don't want to lose his power, or the prestige that comes from having him there. That may be what Paul's pointing at, that your boasting has to do with tolerating someone for what you get out of it, as opposed to confronting the, the persistent sin. It's possible that their arrogance has to do with the fact that they spend their time pointing at the wickedness in greater Corinth, and their arrogance has to do with the fact that, in essence, they are pointing out the speck in someone else's eye while they're not looking at the log in their own, right? That arrogance might be indicative of a group of people who are so externally focused at the wickedness around them that they've ceased to pay attention to the wickedness within them. But what Paul will emphasize here is you should be grieving, you should be heavy-hearted over what this man is doing, And yet you're boasting about it. You're arrogant about it. And it should not be so. So there's a corrective here, right? The problem isn't just the incest. The problem is of a community that is tolerant of things by people who are claiming to be followers of Christ that should not be tolerated because they are oil and water. Things that do not fit in the revelation of Christ. So we talk a lot around here about this church existing to reveal Christ. That we exist to put Jesus on display in our workplaces and in our neighborhood and in our city and in our world, right? That as Christ is revealed to us, he is then revealed in us, both individually and corporately, so that he then can be revealed by us to those who've never met Jesus, who don't know what he's done for them or who he is. We exist for the revelation of Christ, and this kind of persistent sin that's even publicly known, that's known by the community at the very least... It mars the image of Christ. It distorts the image of Christ. It has no place. It's why in verse 11, he'll go so far as to say, um, well, he goes so far as to add another list. So this is another thing that's important to understand. We're talking about the problem, right? The problem is that there's sin that's going on. And it isn't just this one guy in this one particular instance. He broadens it out. And it's still not an exhaustive list. But listen to what he says in 11. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If you're taking notes, if you've got one of our journals, I would have you underline bears the name of brother. The, the intolerance that he's advocating for is specifically within the body of Christ. It's for someone who on one hand is saying, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I'm a follower of Christ. I've been, I've been raised from the dead through the death and resurrection, right? He's not talking, and he's explicit about this in the text. He's not talking about people outside of the church community. He's not talking about sexual immorality. He's not talking about greed. He's not talking about idolatry that's happening in the wider world. He's saying in your community, you've got people who claim to be brother, who have taken the name Christian, who are advocating that they are followers of Christ, and yet they're living in ways that are contradictory to the character and nature of Christ, and therefore the revelation of Christ is distorted. He's like, you're not, you're not keeping your house clean. I think I've told some of you before, but my mom, when she was alive, was like, uh, she was like a, a wartime general when it came to house cleaning, right? She was very vigilant. I mean, my mom had us like, we're dusting the legs of tables we never sat at, right? She, when I, had, I would have like my friends come over in junior high and she'd make me clean the shower in the bathtub. And I'm like, none of my friends are taking a shower. She's like, well, they might look behind the curtain. I'm like, well, I'll tell them not to. She's like, clean it, right? You know, she's very specific in how things had to be clean. She was very specific about keeping the house clean all the time, no matter whether we had people there or not. My mom had a very particular way of like loading the dishwasher. Even today, 
My family will tell you, like, I will go and unload the dishwasher and reload it in order to align it with my mom's meticulous standards because she was so particular about how you load a dishwasher. Like, I've, I've become a little bit of a legalist when it comes to dishwasher loading, right? And I realized over time that for my mom, it wasn't so much about keeping the house clean for other people's impressions. It wasn't so much about keeping the house clean for the sake of what other people would say, because I was right. My junior high friends were not going to take a shower while they were visiting me, right? But the reason why we kept the house clean was because it was the right thing to do, right? There's a wrong way and a right way. Now, she might have been a little over the top, but I'll tell you, I still am really careful about how I load the dishwasher. And I don't, I mean, my mom is in heaven now. I don't know if I'm worried about, you know, her ghost or whatever. I'm not sure how that works, right? It's not theologically sound, but, but I'm still, that's trained into me. What Paul is saying is that there is, there is some house cleaning that needs to take place and you've turned a blind eye. The problem that he's pointing out in this place is the arrogance and the tolerance. They're tolerating conduct that is not consistent with the revelation of Christ. They show no grief or desire to correct. They show no grief or desire to correct. And it's, it's worth looking at the list again in verse 11. Because what can happen to us also when we look at 1 Corinthians 5 is we can make this entirely about sexual immorality. Or even worse, we can make it entirely about incest, right? There is a danger for us who are sitting in the room this morning or those who are listening online that you look at this and you're like, oh man, a guy who's sleeping with his, his dad's wife, like that would never happen to me. And so let's move on to 1 Corinthians 6. Pump the brakes. Because the point here isn't about that specific sin. It's about the church's, the community's response to sin across the board. He goes on to give a list in 11, and we need to pay attention to it. He says, anyone who calls themselves a Christian or bears the name of brother, but is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, you you shouldn't even eat with such a one. And he's pointing there at at the communion table. He's pointing at the Lord's, Lord's Supper. But what he says there is he says you shouldn't tolerate someone who's doing these things. And he he gives a much broader list. Greed, greed's not just about money. You can be greedy for power. You can be greedy for influence. You can be greedy for fame. You can be greedy for your own opinions, right? He talks about idolatry. That's not just people who are bowing down to a carved image. That's anyone who has made anything other than Christ their God. We start looking at that list and you broaden it out. The one word in that list you might not know is reviler. He says, you have to be on guard in your community against revilers. Well, what is a reviler? A reviler is someone who is abusive in speech or insulting in their speech and conduct towards other people in the church, right? If you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I know anybody who's ever slept with their stepmom, but if you've been in the church for any amount of time, not just this church, but any church, reviling is persistent, right? It happens regularly that we speak in an insulting an abusive way to one another. He says, if you've got someone who's persistent in reviling, they have no place in the community of Christ and, and they should be disciplined for that, right? Now we get nervous about discipline. We're gonna get here to his prescription in a second. We get nervous about discipline. And I think part of the reason we get nervous about discipline is that all of us are broken and all of us are sinners, right? So all of us have moments of greed. All of us have moments of lust. All of us have moments of pride. We all have moments where we say things we wish we hadn't said, Right? But, but the difference of what he's talking about here is that you're dealing with someone who is resistant to change. You're someone who's resistant to confrontation. Someone who's persistent in ongoing activity. And they're so persistent in ongoing activity that what their life is actually advocating is that you can be a follower of Christ and also a reviler at the same time. That you can be a follower of Christ and also sexually immoral. 
What they're advocating is that you can be an, a follower of Christ and persistently greedy, and that isn't true, right? You can't, I mean, I've said before, and some of you maybe disagree, but Lando Calrissian cannot both be a friend of Darth Vader and Han Solo at the same time. Right? Not possible. In fact, I would argue he's not friends of either of them. The reality here is that he's telling us we have to be on guard for persistent sins. What he's not saying is, if someone is greedy, or if someone sometimes is idolatrous, or if someone has a momentary sin, you have to expel them from your assembly. You know what that would mean? There would be no assembly. Right? We cannot have a community of Jesus followers if we expel sinners. This is a place for broken people. The difference is they have to be broken, broken people who in sincerity and truth are willing to own their problems and recognize the place where their character and conduct is not consistent with the character and conduct of Christ. You see the difference? He says, you've got this person who's in this ongoing relationship and you guys are bragging about it, but you should have put him out of your community. No less than four times he talks about his prescription for the way in which this should change. He talks about what needs to be done. He says here in verse 2, he says, You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? That's the posture in which church discipline should take place. He says, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. It's worth saying that what Paul is not advocating for is a community of people who are anxious and excited to kick other people out, right? Anxious and excited to find people who are problematic and remove them. That's, that's not a spirit and a heart of mourning either, right? We don't want to turn into a community that's constantly judging one another, Salem witch trials and whatnot. The idea rather is that in a spirit of mourning, you would approach someone who is persistent both in their declaration of Christ and in their broken character, and you would say, this is not appropriate. This cannot stand. This has to stop, right? We get worried about his prescription here because we get worried, like, will there be a place for any of us? Well, the key is sincerity and truth, and he'll talk about that here. He says in verse 3, Though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you were delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He gives a prescription to the church at Corinth about how they should handle this man who's involved in persistent sexual immorality. And I want to talk about it for a second. He, he cites his own sort of apostolic authority. So he goes, hey, I'm not there and I may not be there among you already, but I want you to know that as an apostle and the founder of that church, I have already passed judgment on this person. And the next time that you're meeting together, that person needs to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Now he's, he's uh, flexing his apostolic authority, but here's, here's the thing I want you to understand. He shouldn't have to do that, right? He's only flexing that apostolic muscle because they as a community had already not done the thing they were supposed to do. He starts by saying, I'm surprised to see you boasting and arrogant about the ongoing sin in your community. And I got to be, I got to tell you that I'm not there right now, but from a distance as your leader, I'm telling you, I've already passed judgment. The only reason he steps in with that apostolic authority is because the community is already not self-corrected, right? What he's aiming at and what we want to realize as a community is this church, Fullerton Free, here on the corner of Bastion Cherry and Brea, is that we don't, we shouldn't have to have some, you know, supreme leader, the leader of the EFCA or the elders and pastors. But this isn't, an, he's not advocating the elders in this chapter, by the way. You know who he's talking to? The assembly. He's talking to us. Church discipline, church correction happens with us in community with one another. 
That doesn't mean that every individual is always judging every other individual. But here's the thing. What he's describing here in the handing over of this one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his soul may be saved, I would describe that as kind of the nuclear option. You might have heard it commonly referred to as excommunication. That's the prescription, excommunication. If you've got someone who's saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm also just greedy, or I'm a follower of Jesus, but I just I have a tendency to be really rude in my speech. If you've got such a one in your community and you've tried to correct them and you've tried to tell them, hey, you've got to change your character or change your name, and they're resistant to that, there is a point where the community can expel them from fellowship, Right? And expel them from the Lord's table. He says, don't associate with them. And the, the imagery there is of a vine wrapped around a tree. It's not saying you can't talk to them in the grocery store. It's not saying that you couldn't uh, ha- take them out and have some, you know, chicken strips or whatever. It's not saying you can't have any association. It's saying don't be intertwined with them because they mar the image of Christ in you. Don't be intertwined with them. And it says don't even eat with such a one. The language there is pointing specifically at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That they are excommunicated from participation in the taking of the bread and the drinking of the wine in remembrance of Christ, right? And that feels heavy to us. But what it's not advocating for, when it says, hey, you're going to turn him over to Satan, the idea here is not of one being turned over to Satan for their death. And that is a way that interpreters have read this over the centuries. There are lots of theologians you could read who say, hey, if you've got someone who's persistent in sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviling or whatever, you put them out of your community and Satan will take their life, but at least they'll go to heaven, right? There are people who've read this text that way. To me, that doesn't feel consistent with the rest of Paul's teaching. It doesn't feel consistent with the rest of the grace of God, right? The goal is always correction and repentance, never total destruction. And there are so many places in the Bible where Paul talks about about us having to reign in the flesh or crucify the flesh or get our flesh under control because we're in the now and the not yet. Uh, For example, we could look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Right? He's calling us to turn away from the works of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The prescription, we understand the problem. The problem is that the church has turned in their boasting and arrogance away from actually keeping their their body under control and accountable. He says you shouldn't be boasting. You shouldn't be turning a blind eye. Instead, there should be ongoing correction, right? I'm having to step in, he says. But the emphasis is you guys already should have been mourning this. So in togetherness, here's the deal. If there is ongoing accountability in a community, 
If there is an ongoing relationship, if we're connected to one another and in an ongoing, gracious and loving way, we look at one another and go, you know what? I got to tell you that thing you said, I think was inappropriate. You know what? I just have to put my foot down and say this relationship you're in with your girlfriend. Like, I don't, I don't think that reveals Christ. Hey, you know what? I just want to tell you, like some of the way you talk about money and the way you talk about investments, I think you've kind of turned the corner into greed. There is an ongoing way without kicking people out of our fellowship that we walk alongside each other and go, Hey, I I think you're kind of getting close to the margins here, right? Hey, I think you've kind of gotten off track from the foundation that is Jesus Christ. I think you've kind of lost the main thread here with who Christ is and your revelation of him is getting a little distorted because there are things you're tolerating that you shouldn't tolerate. If we're doing that in an ongoing way, guess what never needs to happen? Excommunication. Excommunication only needs to happen in one of two instances. In an instance where the the community at large has refused to correct one another and hold one another accountable in grace or when you've got one in the community who is so resistant to ongoing accountability that they reject it outright, right? And that both of those happen. But what I'm saying is we, we as a community, we don't, want to be the, we don't want to be the people who have to use the nuclear option. The picture here is not of handing a person over to Satan literally to kill them, but rather of handing them over to the realm of darkness, the place where darkness and evil rule. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, Paul says that he, that's Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What Paul is advocating in 1 Corinthians 5 is if you have one who is persistent in sin but continues to claim the name of Christ in such a way that he's distorting the image of Jesus, that there is a point where you say, you've got to spend time in the domain of darkness because that's what you're asking for. And you remove them from fellowship and you remove them from sharing in the Lord's table. But that doesn't mean you treat them like dogs. It doesn't mean you treat them without the dignity of human beings. It doesn't mean we can't know them. It's saying they can't have a part of this because it distorts the revelation of Christ in our midst. And he uses an analogy here. He uses the analogy of the Passover. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He uses this example which would have been immediately familiar to any of his Jewish listeners. Anybody that was reading the letter who was from a Jewish tradition. And for those of you in our room who are familiar with the Passover celebration, you know that before Passover is celebrated, there is a window of time in which you go through your house and you clean out all that is leavened, all the yeasty bread, right? Everything that has leaven in it has to go and you can either throw it away or you can sell it, right? But you go through your house and you can almost, like you you make that a part of your celebration, the cleansing of your home of anything that is leavened because it only takes a little bit of, of yeast. It only takes a little bit of leavening agent to ruin the whole batch, So in essence, what Paul's pointing at here is that that it's a bit of a binary issue. It's kind of a one or a zero. You either are, uh, you either are actively working through your house to remove the leaven or you're not. And if there's any leaven, it spoils the whole batch. In fact, one of the, I I thought sort of briefly about titling this message today, a new lump. He says, uh, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's what the church is supposed to be. And the only way that happens is for us to be walking with each other in community, be graciously correcting one another, and then be willing to do the hard work when we've got someone who's resistant to that correction and continues in these categories or any other that are not 
not consistent with the character of Christ to say, you no longer have a part in this community. Now, if you think about that prescription for correction, it was different in the first century than it is today. And we see a lot of this, right? Back in the first century, if they were put out of the community of believers in Corinth, there would be nowhere else for them to go. So they would truly be uh, functioning socially in the domain of darkness, right? And that itself would be a catalyst to repent of their sin and come back. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul talks about giving some people over to Satan so that their blasphemy will be taught out of them, right? So the idea here is not of, of... eternal damnation or condemnation. It's, it's about remedying the issue. It's about correction and repentance. There's more glory for God through correction and repentance than there is through destruction alone. But he says, you have to be vigilant to walk through your house and clean it out because a little bit of lump, a little bit of leaven that's just tolerated there because of the wealth of the people or the social status of the people, or because you like them or because, you know, maybe what they're doing feels like a way to advocate for freedom in Christ. There are lots of reasons to boast about wickedness in your midst than to do something about it. But there is a moment where you hand, you hand this person over for their correction, right? That the fleshly in them will be pruned out. That what is fleshly in them will be corrected. That is the prescription for change in this particular case. But what I was going to say is in, in the first century, uh, if you were put out of the church at Corinth, you'd have nowhere to go. That's drastically different than it is today. Today, there is a church on every corner, right? And so even, you know, right around here, you've got uh, Presbyterians and Baptists and Catholics and you've got the Assemblies of God and you've got the Calvary Chapels and the E.V. Frees and whatever. Many times what happens now is when someone faces church discipline, rather than allowing themselves to be corrected and transformed by it, they just move on to another church. They either move from church to church to church to church or sometimes they start their own thing, right, in a different place. And so we have to be vigilant even in walking alongside people. But I, I want you to hear me say again that, that what he's describing in 1 Corinthians 5 isn't exclusively my job. And by that, I mean it's not the senior pastor or the lead shepherd or whatever. You, like, this isn't just for me. It is, it is me, but only insofar as I'm a part of the body. He's not talking about something that is exclusively the elder's job. Although it is the elder's job as part of the body, what he's talking about is that we should be a self-correcting organism that is intolerant of things that are done in the name of Christ that have nothing to do with Christ. And if in an ongoing way, right, if in an ongoing way we're self-correcting, then those things can't fester to the place, hopefully, where they have to be dealt with with excommunication or removal from the body, right? This is a last straw. But why? Because what, what's the purpose? So we talked about the problem. We talked about the prescription, right? What, what should be done? And then lastly here, I, I want you to see the purpose. Well, and I've hinted at this already. The purpose is the restoration of the revelation, the restoration of the revelation, both in the individual and in the body, right? I'm sure you don't have to work very hard to recognize that in our world today, when you meet someone who is not a Christian, one, one of the primary things that they will use as an argument not to be a part of a church is that the church feels unnecessarily focused on the wickedness of outsiders and absolutely unwilling to hold accountable their insiders, Right? There is a danger for us in the distortion of the revelation of Christ in our community when our harsh judgmentalism toward unbelievers is coupled with a tolerance and accommodation of persistent sin by believers and it makes our witness a parody of the gospel. Right? And there are a lot of people in the world who will go like, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with a Christian church because it doesn't feel like the Christian church is holding itself accountable. They just want to hold their picket signs and point their fingers at us. What Paul is advocating for is a friendship 
with those who are broken in the broader world because God will judge them and that's his business. He says here in the, in the last, part, last part of this text, he says in verse nine, I wrote you in my letter. By the way, that's a reference to a letter that we don't have, right? He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. Right? He says, you, you misunderstood what I'm saying. I'm not saying you need to be judgy about the people who are broken on the outside. Those are the people you should be connected with and showing the grace of God to. But your revelation to them becomes distorted when you fail to keep yourselves pure. When you fail to hold one another accountable, that is then distorted. We fail when we distance ourselves from unbelievers and we fellowship with believers who are persistent in unrepentant sin. You see the difference? We fail when we distance ourselves from unbelievers. Why? Because we're meant to be ambassadors. We're meant to be revealing Christ in the world in which we are, right? So as heavy as it is to purge the persistently greedy or idolatrous, it is for their good, right? It says uh, back up into um, verse 5, you're to deliver the man to Satan for their destruct- the destruction of the flesh or to purge the fleshly from him so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The intention there is rest- restoration, right? Reconciliation. Right? We remove the person from community, and that's remedial. It's meant to remedy the problem. Not, it's, it's not condemnatory. Church discipline is remedial, not condemnatory. You see the difference? We're not, we're not just judging a person and kicking them out. It's about us going, hey, this doesn't line up with, with the actual character of Christ, and it has to change. And if you're not willing to change it while you're in the body, we will put you out of the body in hopes that God will do that work, or, or God will do that work through Satan, in your life. It's kind of crazy to imagine, but that's what's being described in this case. It is for the good of the person who's being corrected. Not only that, it's for the preservation of the purity of the body, that we would be a new lump and and a lump that's not leavened with malice and evil, but a lump that's leavened with sincerity and honesty. What's the idea there? Well, the idea there is that we can't come to the Lord's table without sin in our lives because we're broken. We have not yet been perfected. The idea with sincerity and honesty is that we would be a new lump of people who were defined by our openness about the things we get right and the things we get wrong. The moments of real faithfulness and holiness and the moments of absolute failure, right? That we could carry those together in an ongoing desire to correct and be a more accurate revelation of Christ. It is for the preservation of the purity of the body. It's an all or nothing equation. Leavened or unleavened. There is no half. He wants our celebration not to be leavened with malice and evil, but sincerity and truth. So that there will be a restoration of an accurate picture of Christ in our community to be seen by outsiders. This is heavy, and I get that it's heavy. And I get that it's hard because we don't want to be judgy all the time. But I think the coolest thing about this is, is that in some ways it's just us advocating for caring about each other enough to go like, hey, I think you've gotten off course. Hey, I think the way you talked to that other guy was inappropriate. Hey, I think the relationship you're in or the way you're spending your money or whatever, it's just us walking alongside each other. And not only should we all be engaged in that way in one another's lives, but we should welcome that kind of engagement in our lives because it will make us better followers of Jesus. What we want to be on guard against is that moment where our heart becomes hardened and we either become tolerant in our own lives of things that are not conducive with the character of Christ or we become tolerant of it in, in, in the lives of others simply because it's, it's, uh, there's some sort of advantage for us in letting it go on the way it has. We can't do that. The Bible says we can't do that, that we together should be standing up, that we together should be self-correcting for the glory of God and the good of the one who was gotten off the path, the idolatrous and the reveler and the greedy and the swindler and the sexually immoral. 
Paul says, man, I've heard this thing's happening in you and you haven't done anything about it. So I'm telling you from a distance, this is what happens the next time you assemble. But what he's hoping is that they would be a community of people who go, man, we want to put a clear picture of Jesus on display. And that means sometimes we have to, we have to, we have to have difficult conversations, even conversations where we remove people for the preservation of the revelation of Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would give us patience and wisdom, that you'd give us discernment and courage to be the kind of people who don't boast about ongoing and persistent sin in our midst. That we would be people who see it clearly and and take steps to try and transform it in each other, but then also recognize that there are moments as an assembly where we have to say, "This this can't keep going on. This has to stop. In the cases where there are brothers and sisters who are both claiming the name of Christ and living a life in speech and conduct and attitude and character that is contrary to who he is, that's both damaging for them, it's damaging for our community, and it's damaging for your revelation in our world. God, will you help us to be a light in the world that we would love those who are broken and that we would, that we would walk alongside each other in this place in a way that both brings glory to you and good to one another. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.